This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Hola. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations with disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. This being is Bethel of the Weirdest Bus. Today, today I speak with Kathy Flaherty about mental health advocacy. Kathy is the executive director of Connecticut Legal Rights Project, a statewide nonprofit agency that provides legal services to low-income individuals with mental health conditions to reside in hospitals or the community on matters related to their treatment, recovery, and civil rights. Kathy combines her personal experience as a recipient of mental services and her legal background to speak to issues affecting those living with mental health conditions. As a content warning, this interview will discuss the following topics that may be traumatic and triggering gun violence, hospitalization, psychiatric institutions, forced medication, suicide, and suicidal ideation. Are you ready? Away we go. So, Kathy, I am so excited to have you on my podcast today. Alice, I am so absolutely delighted to be here. Well, the honor is mine. And uh, would you mind first kind of introducing yourself to the listeners? Sure. Uh, my name is Kathy Flaherty, and I live in Newington, Connecticut. Um, I live with my husband and our rescue dog, Bella. I am an attorney, and I'm the executive director of a nonprofit agency called Connecticut Legal Rights Project. We represent low-income individuals with mental health conditions to uh, protect their legal rights, especially with regard to their treatment and recovery um, and civil legal rights. And I've been doing that job for just over four years. CLRP was founded in 1990 as the result of a settlement of a lawsuit against the state of Connecticut Department of Mental Health on behalf of people who were inpatients at our state's, at the time, three large psychiatric inpatient facilities, um, stating that folks did not have adequate access to the courts and to settle that lawsuit, there was a consent decree that said that a legal assistance program would be established. One of our big priority issues is representing people who are currently inpatient at the state-operated inpatient psychiatric facilities. We have a patient's bill of rights in Connecticut, which are specifically enumerated legal rights that people who are uh, receiving mental health treatment have. Um, so we protect those, and that's especially with regards to rights to informed consent to medication. We have had cases recently where we are um, helping people appeal probate court orders of forced uh, involuntary medication and also forced electroshock, which some people call ECT. Uh, but when people live in the community, we represent them on legal issues related to their housing, um, their education, and employment. You mentioned about, you know, forced uh, treatment. There's a lot of, you know, sense of, like, 
for people without mental disabilities. Oh, like, you know, is it this a way, you know, uh, for people who, like, need help to really get that help? Because there's a lot of people who just don't see that as a violation of somebody's civil rights and their own autonomy. If people express their preferences to us that they either do or do not want something, it's not our choice to make whether or not a particular medication or a particular form of treatment is a good thing, a bad thing, the right thing for them to do, the wrong thing, but instead to make sure that people's legal right um, to informed consent, to know about the risks and benefits of choosing to follow a particular course of treatment or to not follow a recommended course of treatment is respected. And that's what we advocate for. And one of the legal rights that people have under Connecticut state law is the right to meaningful participation in a treatment plan. If the clinical professionals feel that either the person's the danger to themselves or others um, gravely disabled, that is when somebody can be held in a psychiatric hospital against their will. And a lot of people make the assumptions that everything a doctor recommends is always beneficial and never harmful. And people don't always realize the incredibly traumatic impact that forced hospitalization and forced medication and forced electroshock um, can have. You know, I know from personal experience how traumatic some of those things can be because they've happened to me. Um, so I know what it's like to be put in an ambulance and brought to a hospital that I am not choosing to go to. Um, and I know what it's like to be secluded in a room that I don't want to be in. Um, and I also know what it's like to be, you know, injected with medication that I have not willingly chosen to receive. Um, I do think having lived through them, I think it that makes me a better lawyer and a better advocate. But I still wish I had never experienced that because it's dealing with the um, fallout from that um, and resolving some of those past traumas that also inspires me to continue doing the work. Yeah, and I feel like the uh, legal judicial system and just the mental health system is, you know, pretty much stacked against the individual. You know, there's a lot of presumptions about the capabilities and the, you know, flat-out competence of people. What I see too often is that it's when you start asking questions um, when you start challenging assumptions, that that's when people start questioning your ability uh, to make choices for yourself. And unfortunately, the way the legal system is, is set up, that's when they can bring the whole power of the legal system on you to do what they're recommending, even if you don't go along with it. I wish there was a lot more respect for people's autonomy, you know, a concept that we sometimes hear called the dignity of risk. You know, people are allowed um, or should be allowed to make bad choices. 
And there are a lot of people in this world who make a lot of tremendously bad choices. Uh, but if you have a certain amount of privilege, if you have a certain amount of money, you're allowed to be eccentric. If you're a person who's poor, um, a person of color, um, a person from other marginalized communities, your behavior is not labeled as eccentric or different or unique. Um, it's labeled as criminal or it's labeled as dangerous. And either of those two ways, you end up getting locked up. I think a lot about the intersections of like people who are houseless and people with mental disabilities because I think we've seen time and time again how easily uh, people are just baited to scapegoats. Yes, we really do see a lot of uh, criminalizing behavior that is basically survival. Unfortunately, instead of a number of states trying to, gee, maybe provide houses to people, you instead see them talk about civilly committing people uh, to a psychiatric hospital um, or they criminalize behaviors uh, that are survival behaviors, whether that's relieving oneself or begging for money or just trying to live. It just seems to me that society could have a more compassionate response to people who don't have houses and start with housing first. Um, when you talk about scapegoating, um, we often are placed into having the conversation about um, the intersection of guns and violence and mental health, but we should be talking about the risk of suicide and real suicide prevention, and we should be talking about the effect of trauma um, on whole communities uh, that are ravaged by gun violence and addressing the mental health needs of communities uh, that ha deal with everyday violence. The one time that it is guaranteed that everybody will want to have a discussion about mental health is in the wake of a mass violence event. People find it easier to just scapegoat people with mental health disabilities and put the focus there. It also places, uh, you know, people with mental health disabilities in the unfair position of having to defend their own humanity, which again, you know, is incredibly uh, exhausting and just, you know, that right. So I'm already over 50. The older I'm getting, the more I realize, you know, how profoundly the very system I work within needs disruption. The thing that's challenging as a lawyer is you're stuck working within this system. A lot of these big problems that we're dealing with um, may have little inroads that we can make, and every single one of those little inroads is getting us closer to where we need to go. You know, what do you see are some of the kind of the real progress or real, real change that's happened in the last 
let's say two decades, uh, especially in mental health, that you really see as, you know, something that's really significant. When I was first, you know, diagnosed uh, with the bipolar disorder that I was diagnosed with back in law school that ended up with me being civilly committed to a psychiatric hospital. That diagnosis was based on a symptom list in a book. I was told, you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, you need medication, and you'll be on your medication for the rest of your life. And I believe that. Um, And for a long time, every medication I tried didn't really work. You know, I had a number of friends who had decided to go off medication. I was really super afraid to do it because the one other time in my life that I had done it, it was a complete disaster. But also, it would bring into question everything I had always been told. Because I, from day one, was really never ashamed of having a diagnosis being on medication, I was involved in a lot of the anti-stigma education programs with the National Alliance on Mental Illness and, you know, was facilitating peer support groups, but very much believed and trusted in the medical model of things. Then I started learning more about the social model, learning about people who were questioning, you know, kind of the assumptions I was brought up with And I said, okay, let me see if it's possible to reject some of the things that usually were the kind of things I would always go along with. And so I had to find another path, which fortunately I had a number of people who were on that path far earlier than me to like guide me along it. What I ultimately concluded is that each person has to find what works for them. And I don't really think there is a wrong way to handle any of this. I just don't. And again, you're speaking about, you know, the dignity of risk. Exactly. And I think... Especially, you know, once you start getting involved in disability justice and disability solidarity conversations and realize how much there is this huge difference of viewing disability as this purely medical experience versus an identity versus a social model and the barriers that society puts up in our way versus anything we do to ourselves, because it really kind of brings everything together. The way I always put it, you know, you've got somebody like me who gets one particular label and somebody who comes from a different community who gets labeled with a completely different diagnosis. But if you look at what the lists of symptoms are, there's a whole lot of overlap. And given the systemic racism and bias in medicine, you can't just say that there is no impact on the whole diagnostic system because of that and and ignore that completely. If all of this function in an ideal world, maybe, but I don't like 
anybody who says that anybody should be ashamed because they use the medication tool in their toolbox. And you shouldn't be afraid um, of asking for help. Um, and people should not tell you to just snap out of it. You know, you mentioned about feeling suicidal for many years. I just, you know, again, there are so many of these, you know, charities, nonprofits, various campaigns about preventing suicide. And yet, you know, sometimes I wonder, do they really reflect what actual people need and want? are all these various anti-stigma campaigns um, and awareness campaigns working? My short answer is no, <laughs> uh, because if they did, uh, you wouldn't still be dealing with the uh, rampant discrimination and bias um, that we have, and our suicide rates wouldn't be skyrocketing. What I always suggest to uh, policymakers, talk first to the people who have lived experience, because we can tell you what will be helpful and what won't. And, you know, the most mainstream media stuff you hear about um, is frankly not all that helpful. The kind of things that are guaranteed to bring a lot of um, notifications onto my phone are when I, I, I tweet things like, you know, don't call 911. <laughs> on somebody who's in emotional distress and people get all upset at me, but well, what am I supposed to do? Well, have you ever thought about just sitting with your friend and talking to them? I think a lot of us, you know, when we're like, but what if they're dangerous? I'm like, yeah, but what if they're not? And what if you bring a greater harm onto them by doing something so that you feel comfortable? And I'm not saying it's easy because I think one of the hardest things is when you see somebody you care about who's in pain. Um, but one of the things that I know because I've been there through it myself and talked to other people who do is that, you know, having suicidal feelings is a lot more common than people really probably have a concept of, um, unless they're either in this work or have survived them themselves. Um, and sometimes what you really need is that place, have an honest conversation and connect with somebody else who's been through the same thing. And then you can figure out how to puzzle through it together. You know, because unfortunately, the way we have our system set up and anybody who's been through the system and is honest will tell you this. The system teaches you to be incredibly dishonest with people because the way the system is set up, if people were actually honest in expressing their thoughts to certain people within the system, expressing those thoughts gets you locked up. So people don't have the conversation. This is the aversion and fear of, you know, what we think of as darkness or, you know, things that are really uh, unpleasant and uncomfortable. And I think this is another thing that really 
you know, trace that distance between, you know, there's this imagined ideal definition of wellness mm-hmm. or health. It's a very narrow kind of, you know, performative aspect to, you know, always wanting to get better and, you know, not bringing in the reality of frankly dark and, you know, unpleasant thoughts, which are part of the human experience, and yet it's not really accepted. You know, I think a lot of the discomfort, and this is why I'm glad to see things, uh, you know, in movements like neurodiversity and people talking about, you know, how their bodies and their minds kind of move through this world, um, is that there is a lot of variation. um, And that distress is part of the human experience. It's part of being alive. Um, But distressed feelings, you know, are really uncomfortable and they suck. And I don't think most people enjoy having them. Maybe there are some people who who do, um, you know, and recognize the value of those experiences. But it is far easier to kind of numb those feelings out and not have to explore them. I'll be straight up honest. I mean, part of the reason that for me, like as crappy as the meds made me feel, I didn't really want to deal with stuff. It was like I was in massive denial about a lot of things. And it was just easier to kind of uh, endure through the day and kind of exist rather than think about certain things rather than have to sit in stillness and ponder. Yeah, there is a lot of mental health issues within the legal profession, and yet, you know, there are still so many people who are lawyers that don't identify in any way. What are your thoughts in terms of just having more lawyers identify as disabled or, you know, people with mental health disabilities? What is the importance of that? And, you know, what are some ways that you like to see, you know, more people uh, really kind of confront their kind of really endemic issues within the legal profession? I think it absolutely will help as more um, lawyers who are already practicing acknowledge uh, the the reality of their disabled experience and start identifying as disabled. I think um, as this generation of students comes into law school um, and college already having been identified as as having disabilities and, you know, getting the accommodations they needed so they could get through college and get to law school. Um, Here's where you have all kinds of problems is one, the inherent nature of law school. It's competitive to get in. They set you against each other while you're in there. Um, And it, it, in my opinion, (laughs) profoundly unhealthy environment. Anybody who is not depressed during law school I honestly question their humanity. Uh, I can't imagine not being depressed in law school. Um, but 
you know, the barriers that the legal profession puts up to admission to the profession. Um, it's only been this year that Connecticut, which is where I live, um, removed the mental health questions on the application. You know, it took me an extra year and a half from the time I found out I passed the bar exam to actually get admitted. And I was admitted conditionally, and I had to report every six months for nine years that I was compliant with the treatment my doctor recommended. And my doctor had to submit a note every six months for nine years till I got those conditions removed. Uh, they have changed the process. I have often been told I'm the poster child for everything went, that went wrong uh, with that process. But the day I got sworn into the bar, the judge who swore me in in chamber said, basically, we used to not let people like you into the bar. And I just didn't even know what to say at that point, except thank you, um, Your Honor. But even now, when we talk about diversity and inclusion within the legal profession, it has been a hard push and a heavy lift to get them to even ask about disability. And the pushback I got on why aren't you asking the question is nobody will tell us. And I'm like, well, have you thought about why people aren't telling you <laughs> and do something about that rather than just like cater to that and not even ask the question? But people expect attorneys to behave a certain way, to do their work in a certain way. Um, and there are certain personality traits that get rewarded or not rewarded. And some of those you know, depending on what kind of legal practice you're doing. For me personally, since I've been in charge of hiring, you know, anybody who kind of either comes out in a cover letter or it's obvious from the kind of interest they show on their resume or the work that they've done, that they've got, you know, their own personal connection to disability, that person's getting an interview. That gives you, um, you know, a foot in the door with me because, I also think you are a lot more likely to relate uh, to our clients. And it's not that you automatically um, are necessarily a better lawyer just because you have a mental health condition yourself. But if you've been through some of those experiences, you just can relate to people in a different way. I feel like for a long time, it's very rarely been that case for the people who are, you know, advocating and representing somebody to actually reflect the same community that they're, that they're serving, which I think is really unfortunate that it's still kind of the rare exception. Yeah, and I think representation absolutely matters. I was at a meeting, you know, within the last week that completely blew my mind and assumptions that I had about things that I thought were, you know, good for my collective clients. But going to meetings in the community and listening to people from the community tell you what they need, which is often 180 degrees different from what you, what you and your mind thought they needed. That's the kind of thing that I have to remind myself to do more often because that's the kind of thing that one, 
you know, gets me out of my own head, which is always really important for me personally to do. But two is it will help me do my job better. We view our job kind of as giving informed consent to our clients. It's like, here are your possible choices. Here are the consequences of each of those potential choices. But it's up to you as the client to make that choice. It's not up to us to tell you what to do. I think one of the most valuable things um, that I always appreciate because we send out client surveys when cases are closed. But when I get to review a client survey that comes back and somebody says, you know, this is the first time that anybody's ever listened to me. And I really, really appreciate that. On one hand, it's absolutely heartbreaking um, and infuriating that the person has not had that experience up till now. Uh, but it makes me really proud to lead a team of people who do that and can model that and show that to our clients every day. It, it, that's the kind of legal advocacy that we needed. You know, I'm just so thankful of what you and your organization does and, you know, many other organizations are doing as well all over the country and all over the world. Yeah, and it really is a privilege to be able to do it. Um, and I just am so incredibly grateful that the organization that I interned for um, after my first year of law school, that the board invited me to uh, lead it now. Because I really do, you know, I wake up on Mondays looking forward to going to work. And I know not everybody has uh, that luxury. Well, Kathy, I am just so thankful for you and uh, my friendship with you. And, you know, thank you for sharing today. Thank you so much, Alice, for giving me the opportunity. I've really appreciated uh, getting to spend some quality time with you. I love it. I love it. This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project and all the community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media and culture. All episodes including text transcripts are available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com slash podcast. You can also find out more about Kathy's work on my website. The audio producer for this episode is Cheryl Green. The introduction by Latif McLeod. Thank you, Sick Publisher Sports Camp. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. You can also support our podcast for dollar month or more by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dvp. Thanks for listening. Just see you on the internet. Bye. Rocket to the blast off. Stop, drop, dance off. <laughs>